The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the seemingly never-ending drug war that is a blight on Latin America. We'll hear analysis about two of the biggest fronts in that war, Mexico and Venezuela. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. In Mexico, protesters attacked the Guerrero State Congress over the case of 43 missing students. Protesters set fire to five vehicles outside the State Congress building, causing extensive damage. The protesters also torched the State Education Audit Building and the headquarters of the ruling party, the PRI. The protesters are reacting to statements made by Attorney General Jesus Murillo Caram that the students were shot and then their remains were incinerated. Authorities have found evidence of the incineration and rubbish bags with human remains at a garbage dump in Guerrero. Members of a drug gang have confessed that they burned the students' remains. Forensics teams have been unable to link the remains to the students so far. Critics say that the government is trying to avoid further investigation with charges of collusion with the drug cartels. Activist Antonio Fernandez is one of those critics. Maria Crom is saying that the students were burned and that the ashes were dumped in the rivers, so there's nothing they can do. That's just a way to stop protesting. Protesting began when the 43 education students went missing in September. The attorney general says local officials in the town of Iguala ordered their disappearance. Police and a local drug gang worked together to capture and kill the students. Investigators sent the charred remains to a special laboratory in Austria to see if they can find a DNA link to the missing students. We'll have more reactions to this case later in this program. A study by a nonprofit group reveals Brazilian police kill six persons a day. The Brazilian Forum on Public Safety says that Brazilian police have killed 11,000 people in the past five years, an average of six persons each day. By comparison, U.S. law enforcement have killed a similar number over the course of 30 years. The study also says that Brazil had more than 50,000 homicides in 2013 alone, an average of about one person every 10 minutes. U.S. Vice President Joe Biden will be meeting with Central American presidents today, Friday, November 14th, in Washington, D.C. The vice president will be meeting with the president of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Biden will also meet with the president of the Inter-American Development Bank. Biden and the presidents will discuss strategies to help curb migration. The presidents want billions more to stem the tide of undocumented immigrants headed northward. The New York Times is reporting today that the series of meetings comes just ahead of expected announcements next week regarding changes in U.S. immigration policy. The Times says U.S. President Barack Obama is expected to exempt as many as 5 million undocumented migrants from deportation. A team in Brazil is on track to win the world record for the world's tallest sandcastle. The sandcastle was constructed in the small town of Niterói. 
American sandcastle artist Rusty Croft used 20 truckloads of sand to build this 39-foot structure. The castle took nearly a week to complete. Representatives of Guinness World Records visited the site and will release their rulings in a few days. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Our listeners in Ho Chi Minh City, during the past week, exceeded our audience from any other spot. So we try to say, come on to all our listeners in Vietnam. And now back to the drug war in Latin America, our special focus this week. With the connections between drug gangs and the disappearance of 43 university students in Mexico, we head there first. Mexican authorities have killed or captured the heads of at least six different cartels in the past year, including the notorious Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman, the head of the Sinaloa cartel. But incidents like the disappearance of the students fuel public perceptions that the cartels are maintaining the upper hand. Joe Tuckman covers Mexico for The Guardian, and she is the author of Mexico, Democracy Interrupted. She joined us via Skype from Mexico City to give us a primer on the drug cartels and the situation in Mexico. They have had quite a lot of success with getting the big names, but getting the big names doesn't disarticulate the organization, or if it does, it can often create more <laughs> problems than, than were there originally when the, the cartel disintegrates into smaller organizations fighting over territory. In my book, I, I kind of try and chart its its origins and the first Boy, six odd years that, that, of, its, of its development since President Felipe Calderon launched uh, a military-led offensive against organized crime, promising to to clear clear things up, an offensive that actually backfired and and made things a lot a lot worse. I'm wondering about this new case with the students who disappeared in Iguala. That particular case has shown that civil society is reacting finally to the inability of the Mexican state to deal with the cartels and the corruption, does it not? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's potentially a watershed. You know, I mean, it, it, the, the, what happened in Iguala was so blatant. And there were stories of disappearances and there were stories of murders allegedly directly involving the mayor. And... and the federal authorities and all the rest of the political elite turned a blind eye to that. And so I think there's a general sense that um, what happened in Iguala was kind of waiting to happen. And it, it, it's woken people up to say enough is enough. And another thing that's very important about what the mobilizations sparked by the disappearance of the students and, and probable massacre is... Um, <laughs> There's no group within the political elite that is is above any of those kinds of accusations. So the protesters are are basically. I mean, there's a there's a lot of ire directed against the federal government. That's true, but there's a general sense that 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 in, <laughs> that that nobody's above it. That this is a problem that affects the entire political class. We heard some reporting last week that the. Mayor's wife may have also had connections to organized crime, specifically to the Beltran Leva cartel. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the mayor's wife's the, a, a number of her brothers uh, are were said to be 
operatives within the Beltran labor cartel. And Guerreros Unidos cartel is one of the many spin-offs from the Beltran labor cartel, which goes back to what we were talking about before about the strategy in, in, against organized crime launched by Felipe de Calderon and essentially carried on by uh, the, the current president, Enrique Peña Nieto. Um, they went, the Beltran labor cartel essentially began to disintegrate after the arrest and um, and and uh, and death of its major leaders that really began to take hold in 2010. In this past year, we've seen the head of the Sinaloa cartel arrested. Recent arrests that I believe that you've covered of the heads of the Gulf cartel and other cartels, the Tijuana cartel, also within the past few months. But yet, that has not had much success. The the decapitation of, of these organizations. Well, it, it, I mean, it goes back to the, the original point. Unless you have the institutional solidity and credibility to um, move from a decapitation to reducing the threat that the power struggles that that promotes um, has on institutional life in general, you're actually not doing anything to solve the problem. And one of the major, major problems has been that the strategy, neither the strategy of Felipe Calderón or the strategy of Enrique Peña Nieto has really attacked that basic issue of political corruption. It's of collusion with the cartels that is particularly evident at a local level in cities like Iguala, obviously, but in many places around Mexico where um, local municipal authorities are essentially captured by uh, local criminal organizations and nothing is really, really done about it. So if you have those pieces of the jigsaw captured by different groups, you have a recipe for disaster, especially if those groups are in conflict. Is some of this also due to the weakness of the Mexican state in that what we're watching really is a drug war that is a war of competition between these various cartels with the state trying to intervene and the state is not able to completely compel these cartels to end their war. No, yeah, well, completely. If you have parts of the state captured by different cartels, it's very difficult to say where one starts and the other ends, you know? It's um, when you have parts of the, the, the whole state apparatus which are actively involved in the drug wars, then, then, then it ricochets down and ordinary people have absolutely nobody to turn to, least of all the... the the state, that <laughs> there's a desperate problem of credibility. Now, one of the things that's come out with the Iguala case is that most of this, most of the time, we've we've long noted this capturing at a at a, a local level, at a municipal level. But one of the things that the, the questions raised by Iguala was how much did the federal state, federal authorities know, and and they obviously had to know something, or else um, their intelligence capabilities are. Are, are, are really wanting, and if what what did they do about what they know? Well, up until now, the message has been that whatever they knew, they didn't do anything about. The debate I know during the Calderon administration was how much of Mexico did the central state actually control? Was it forty percent? Was it sixty percent? And I'm guessing now, as a reporter working out of Mexico City, that you sometimes have to gauge your safety and how you travel to various parts of Mexico. 
Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 got much 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 more difficult in the last in the last few years. Um, I mean I'm I'm not somebody who who takes great risks, and I I do now limit myself. I'm much more careful than I than I than I used to be. I, I wonder if you could um, give us your assessment of the cartels themselves. Is there a cartel that's winning this particular drug war, in your opinion? It's very hard to tell because the, the, the panorama has changed significantly over the years. One of the things that I, I like to emphasize is that to call it a drug war is, is a little bit misleading. What it actually is is a lot of drug wars that are localized in different parts of the country, and some of them involve the same groups, and they involve different parts of the state. But it's an extremely complex dynamic where to understand each one of the particular conflicts you need to understand what, who's involved in each of those conflicts and what they're actually fighting about. Because they're not always fighting about the same thing, and they're not only fighting about drug trafficking either. Some of them are fighting about local, uh, about local production, but some of them are also fighting over control of other um, criminal activities in particular territories, whether it is to do with drugs, local consumption, on the local market, but it also just as easily can be do, to do with extortion rackets or kidnapping rackets, I mean, I think in general, when you look at the different cartels and the different territories that they control, you can probably still say that the Sinaloa cartel is the strongest, um, at least even despite the, the arrest of Chapel, they still seem, appear to have a pretty strong control over their major bastions, beginning with, with Sinaloa itself. Um, you have the complete breakdown of the Caballeros Templarios, which was the direct descendant of the La Familia cartel in Michoacán. And that would be the Knights Templar cartel. That's the, that, yeah, that's the, the, the Knights Templar. Although they've, they've kind of broken down and what's replacing them isn't quite clear. Um, you've got a new, a relatively new cartel that's getting more influence recently called the New Generation Jalisco cartel, which is... Um, rooted in Jalisco, but has, um, has influence elsewhere. The Gulf Cartel went into crisis, but it's, there's apparently some kind of regeneration in Tamaulipas. The Setas went into crisis. It's not quite clear what's happening with them. I think the Setas, I think it's fairly established that they're much, much weaker than they were before. Um, but I don't think they've, they've completely disappeared. There's all sorts of other, I mean, you know, there's the, the, all the spin-offs from the Beltran Labour. Beltran Labour, again, was, was extremely important a few years back. And now as a, a, an organization, it, it, it's almost disappeared. But they have all these spin-off things which are so important, for example, that in Iguala they could um, be involved in something so uh, <laughs> over the top, basically, as... as um, as disappearing dozens of students under the eyes of the of the military. I mean, it's it's an extreme. It's a panorama that, as a result of the offensive that began with Calderon, has become much more complicated and no safer. Let me go back to the Zetas. Mm-hmm. Last year, the head of the Zetas, Oscar Omar Torvino Morales, was apprehended, and his brother took over that particular cartel. At, at, at one time, they were ranked along with Sinaloa as being one of the most powerful. And and so is this an example of maybe where the decapitation strategy has partially worked? Perhaps. I mean, yes, I mean, perhaps. 
except, you know, what's it been replaced by? Tamaulipas, the, the center's stronghold, is, is suffering a resurgence of violence at the moment, where, where uh, there are different parts of the Gulf cartel that are primarily struggling with each other. So, um, I repeat, this can kind of, what well, they used to call the kingpin strategy, which decapitated the top, the, the, the top levels, um, doesn't necessarily filter down. Thank you so much, Joe Tuckman, who covers Mexico for The Guardian and the author of Mexico, Democracy Interrupted. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from Mexico City. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you so much. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. It may surprise some to know that at least a quarter of the global cocaine trade moves through Venezuela, a conduit for smuggling from neighboring Colombia. Those are estimates from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, and are confirmed by independent analysis. One of those independent sources is the think tank Insight Crime. We spoke to the co-director of Insight Crime, Jeremy McDermott, via Skype from Medellin, Colombia. Um, Let's think of Mexico. The Mexicans began as the transporters for the Colombians. Uh, and I'm talking in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, the Medellin cartel and all the cocaine that, that moved its way northwards. And today we have Mexican organized crime that has perhaps superseded their, their Colombian predecessors. Uh, and they're now one of the most powerful, uh, they have the most powerful organized crime syndicates in the region. Well, the dynamic is perhaps similar in Venezuela. Venezuela, over the last 10 to 15 years, has become one of the principal transit nations for Colombian cocaine, heading not just to the US market, um, but to the European uh, and even the Asian markets. And when you have this much product, and we're talking at least 200 tons of cocaine a year passing through your nation, it has dramatic effects. I like to describe um, organized crime as a cancer. As soon as you let it in, it begins to grow. And that's the background, perhaps, um, which I'd like to lay out as we move forward talking about Venezuela. So how connected is the Venezuelan military to this particular corrupt cancer? Well, We have a profile um, uh, on our website. We call it the Cartel of the Sons. This is um, a sector of the Venezuelan military that over the years has become increasingly corrupted by this drug trade. Now, initially, uh, the drug traffickers would pay the military and the National Guard to look the other way as shipments moved uh, across the border and then uh, once in Venezuela either left through uh, the two principal uh, or the favorite means of transport. One is um, the air bridge, 
um, which used to go uh, principally up to Hispaniola, which is the Dominican Republic and, and Haiti before continuing on to the US, uh, or more recently towards Central America, particularly um, Honduras. And then the second uh, favorite way of moving drugs out of Venezuela is via the ports, principally um, Puerto Cabello, um, which goes pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, so initially, the, the, these military elements were paid to look the other way. Then they began to extend and deepen their involvement. They began to ex escort drug shipments. Um, we now believe they've got to the stage, bearing in mind the military uh, rig control Maiketia, which is the principal international airport that feeds Caracas, and they control Puerto Cabello, the main port. They have now moved to the point where they are not just turning a blind eye, not just facilitating, we think they may have gone the extra yard and they are now directly involved in selling international drug shipments. I'd like to get back to those connections in the Caracas airport in a bit, but um, there are particular generals that have been um, pointed out by the U.S. State Department as part of um, this trafficking and, and of course, um, their visa opportunities have been pulled and some look at that as a as a political process rather than as a as part of the drug war how do you see that um there is always the danger of of politicization and you know we would be we would be naive to ignore it as one of the relevant dynamics here um however uh from our sources um we have been able to track some fairly credible cases um, against uh, significant figures within the Chavista regime. They may be generals, um, they may be uh, intelligence operatives, uh, they may be some senior politicians. Now, the most recent case, Rick, which you may or may not be planning to refer to is, is the uh, Hugo Armando Carvajal, who was um, the director of military intelligence between 2004 and 2011. He was detained in Aruba, and this sparked off uh, uh, an international incident. Um, the United States requested his extradition, but um, Aruba, under political pressure, um, deported Carvajal back to Venezuela, where he was greeted as a as a as a hero and a victim of imperialist uh, aggression. For me, the case against Carvajal is very strong in terms of drug trafficking and involvement with Colombian rebels. Who are the other key generals in in this particular connection? I'm not I'm not going to go into names, Rick, um, mainly because um, we are uh, we operate in in. Venezuela, um, and we do not want to uh, lay out names until uh, the, either charges have been brought against them or they have been convicted. That's just really a, a, an issue of protecting our, our operators in Venezuela. That's understandable. Let's go back to the Aruba case. Why do you feel that he was involved as he was? Well, there was the, the seizure of um, files from the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, um, Colombia's principal rebel group, currently engaged in negotiations uh, with the government in Havana, Cuba. The FARC have uh, long been involved in drug trafficking. They only admit um, charging taxes on the drug trade up to 
um, coca base. Um, but we have tracked uh, several of their fronts being involved in transnational organized crime, smuggling cocaine shipments into Brazil, into Venezuela, um, into Panama, uh, and into Ecuador, basically to all, to all their neighbors. Um, Carvajal, he is mentioned in the FARC files. These were files seized from um, a guerrilla encampment in 2008. Um, and we studied these files in detail. We have corroborated them with our own um, sources within the guerrillas and with international intelligence agencies. Um, and it's clear that Carvajal um, uh, was involved with the FARC, um, protecting their activities, uh, supporting their activities. We've also had a look at the indictment against him, um, the U.S. indictment. And again, it very much dovetails with what we've been looking from our own sources. So we see that particular indictment as not having any political spin. Um, this is based on, on, on hard facts. Let's go back to the case of the international airport in Caracas. And there has been a recent case where the government caught traffickers. Is that just a case where they're offering up to show that they are still cracking down on drugs? What, Rick, um, I, I assume, are you talking about the, um, the Air France flight? Yes, um, indeed. Yeah, well, this was, um, this was a, a, a wake-up call, Rick. Um, there had long been rumors that Miketia, which is controlled by the military, um, was being used as a significant transshipment point for, um, for cocaine, principally. And then all of a sudden, um, there is this, this case, 1.3 tons on an international commercial Air France um, flight um, ends up in, in Paris from Micatia. How on earth did 1.3 tons get on a flight? Um, and how was it that uh, no one else's luggage made it? Um, so... This this for us was a um, an enormous red flag, and we began to dig into this. Um, some of our guys went to Micatia. Uh, we began to ask questions. We began to look at the process, and it was clear to us that the military um, had not just turned a blind eye, but they had actually been involved in loading this cocaine onto the commercial flight. Now. Um, this caused obviously uh, a huge international scandal. The French wanted to know what the hell was going on. Um, and uh, the Venezuelan government promised um, investigations. Uh, they have arrested uh, some of what we would call the material um, authors of this, you know, some of the, the baggage handlers, um, some of the, uh, the customs authorities, and a couple of low-level military. Um, we do not believe that any of these guys who've been scooped up um, are the intellectual authors or the guys that gave the orders. So Venezuela, under pressure, has arrested some people and now the case, according to them, is now solved. Um, for us, it hasn't dealt with a bigger issue. Who ordered these guys? Who received the cocaine? Um, and uh, who received the payment for this international cocaine shipment? So in this particular case, it was the French who really turned this up and pressured 
further investigation, not the Venezuelans. No, indeed not. And what what, um, our investigations in Europe found is that the French had been onto this for a bit because um, passengers arriving from Caracas had been um, complaining for several months before this incident that their luggage was getting lost. Um, This tells us two things. Uh, One, that this wasn't the first time they used this drug route. And secondly, there was an organized uh, and sustained um, structure that had been using this for a while. I'm wondering, the Venezuelan government, which casts itself as a leader of the left, the progressive left in Latin America, why does it also look the other way while its military is involved this way? We've got to be careful, Rick. We can't taint the whole Venezuelan military. Um, There are certainly corrupt elements within it. And indeed, corruption is a prevalent feature, unfortunately, of the Chavista regime. Thank you so much, Jeremy McDermott, the co-director of Insight Crime, an investigative think tank, coming to us from Medellin, Colombia, via Skype, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks very much, Rick. You can see more from Insight Crime on its popular website, www.insightcrime.org. That's insightcrime, all one word, .org. That concludes our program this week. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.